Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. This summer, we are revisiting episodes from the Global Council podcast archive, looking at what they can tell us about topical developments in public policy and regulation ahead of the autumn. From COP26 to the education system in the US, the GC team offers timeless insight into global and national trends to look out for across sectors and around the world. Good day all, this is Aaron Cadell. I'm president of Global Council USA in Washington, DC. Uh, We're pleased to be joined this morning by Alex Collins, a strategy consultant at UNC Health. What we wanted to do today was take a a look at the COVID-19 crisis from a different perspective. We see so much much data and read so much about, uh, about the virus and about the outbreak and the reaction to it all over the world. But much of this is, is data at a high level or information at a high level from places like Johns Hopkins and the CDC. And we wanted to drill down a little bit and talk to somebody who's been managing through this crisis on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, basis and reacting to the, the shifts in the outbreak within a, a large healthcare system, in this case, the largest system in the state of North Carolina, which is experiencing, like many states, uh, a, an uptick in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations over recent months, although thankfully it does look like, at least in North Carolina, the cases have, uh, daily new cases have dropped a little bit uh, in recent days. Uh, so with that, I'll welcome, welcome you, Alex. And if you could start by, by just talking a little bit about, about UNC Health and also about uh, your role in the organization. Sure, sounds good. Um, so just to begin with, I started with UNC a little over a year ago. Um, and a little background on who UNC is. So like, like Aaron mentioned, UNC Hospitals is the largest hospital system in the state of North Carolina. We are also the state-funded hospital. We are not-for-profit. Not for so that means that a lot of our patients are more low-income. We often deal with a lot of rural patients. Um, we have 11 hospitals within the state of North Carolina, but we also have over 300 hosp- um, clinics across the state. So we do range from a number of different areas. Our main flagship location is located in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but most of our other offices are more in rural uh, spaces. So we do get a pretty good combination of, um, you know, people that are in the, you know, Raleigh and Chapel Hill, but there's also a number of rural patients that we deal with as well. As far as my role within UNC Healthcare, like Erin mentioned, I am a strategy consultant and I'm on the strategic planning team. And a lot of what our team does is hospital and service life planning, for the different hospitals and health systems across the state. So COVID-19 has been definitely interesting for our team because we are the strategy planners within the health system. So whenever a particular service line has a a question or wants to do forecasting, they'll usually reach out to our team. Great, thanks. So maybe start by walking walking us through how your organization has handled the the COVID-19 crisis in North Carolina. And I assume this has been through a few stages. So first, as in many states, COVID cases started to be reported in North Carolina in March. I would assume that you would have heard about that, heard about them coming uh, earlier than that in, in maybe February or January as the global outbreak began. But when did you really start to recognize that the, that COVID-19 would be a problem for, for the state and for, for your health system? And then how did you prepare for it initially? 
Sure. So um, thankfully, UNC was able to react relatively quickly. We do have some members of our team who are do have a background in crisis management and forecasting. So we had people that were closely following as a part of their planning efforts anyway. And then once we realized that it would really be an area that we need to focus a significant amount of effort, we actually decided to divide our team into the COVID planning team and the COVID recovery team, um, where the planning team spent a lot of their time just focused on forecasting, focused on projecting peaks, and what that means for the different service lines within our health system, while the recovery team focused a lot more on now that uh, elective procedures were canceled, UNC in particular started canceling their procedures on March 19th. Um, we were planning for what, how we would handle different cash flow changes and what we would do in terms of financial operations and how we would also get our patients back up. Um, another thing I would note is that, uh, you know, while I work for UNC, the state of North Carolina does have a lot of academic medical centers. We're also the home of Duke Health. Um, you know, we have Wake Med here. So we have a lot of competitors who are also um, you know, also reacting relatively quickly. And we actually decided to do a joint statement to cancel all elective procedures for um, Wake Med, Duke, and UNC altogether. So um, all three, you know, large health systems in, the, in this area were on the same board as far as canceling elective uh, surgeries. Got it. You, there's one phrase that I wanted to pick up on, which is projecting peaks. This would just seem to be uh, an incredibly difficult exercise, as we've seen over these past few months with with seeming fits and starts on on peaks and peaks and valleys how did how do you and your colleagues go about doing that um so there's a number of ways that they would project different peaks um, one thing we would do is track what the governor was saying so we were really closely following how the phased reopening was happening and one particular point of interest was um, the governor actually moved into governor cooper which is the governor of north carolina moved into phase two the weekend before Memorial Day. And we knew that that could be a potential recipe for disaster in terms of what that would mean with, um, you know, not only people getting antsy to get out in the summertime, but also, you know, that phase two happening. And that was an example of a time where we, we kind of projected that peak. And unfortunately, it did come, that, that, did, that was the case where it did happen. But that was one particular point where we knew that we would really need to focus on our bed capacity and what we would do um, post uh, Memorial Day holiday. Got it. And then maybe kind of take us through to that, let's call it the second phase, and then maybe the third would be up to the, up to the current time. But it did seem that the number of cases in the state appeared to plateau in early June. Um, mm -hmm. Did you feel at that point that, that you were, quote, out of the woods, or did you always feel as an organization that this was kind of paused before another another wave, maybe given that reopening around around Memorial Day, uh, kind of walk us through uh, how you as an organization were feeling in that kind of June period. Yeah, so we actually, to, to go back a little bit, we actually ended up resuming our elective surgery by late April. So that was really seen as an accomplishment for our team and the way that we were able to keep patients safe and keep pa patients managed. So. Um, we were really excited about that because we, you know, was a concern how long we would actually be, you know, have to cancel some of these procedures. So that was seen as a huge milestone. Um, one thing that we were following was a lot of other states, and we noticed that June was also the same time as the, you know, a lot of the protests in this country started happening. So that was another area where it was of concern, but we, because we had done a really great job and our planning team had done a really great job of just making sure that we had bed capacity, making sure that we, um, you know, sectioned off different floors of various hospitals specifically for COVID treatment and non-COVID treatment, we were a little bit more prepared. 
Um, there was also a really detailed uh, procedure in place for those that did have to come in for procedures. There was usually a seven day window where people had to get testing, confirm that they were negative and go through the, um, a specific process before even going in for any type of procedures. So that really helped us segment patients and make sure we knew what was going on before the patient actually even ent entered uh, the facility. Got it. And then I guess to, to bring it up to the current time, you've had the number of new cases in the state uh, rise again. It hit new highs just in, in early July. How are you handling the new cases that are requiring treatment or hospitalization now? And then I guess importantly, and, and maybe tough to tough to predict, but what do you expect next uh, in, the, in this virus's path? Um, so one thing that we're really grateful is we don't really have a situation like, you know, Florida and Texas where ICU beds is a concern. As of now, the bed capacity is, you know, on track for what was expected. So while there is a rise in case, the rise in severe cases in North Carolina isn't to the point where we're um, concerned in that area. I think another area of focus, at least for our organization, is just to make sure that we are focused on patient safety, make sure that we can get as much testing as possible. Um, you know, restricting visitors is another area that is a little bit difficult to do, um, but we have been very vigilant on making sure that we're tracking what visitors are coming in and out. And we're also making a lot of efforts to make sure that if you are non-clinical staff, so that would be myself, for example, someone who is administrative, not actually entering the campus. So we do have people that have to be on, on staff, but as far as our work from home policies, um, for the near term and also for the longer term, we're, we're focused on keeping our administrative staff as home as, at home as much as possible. And that includes schedulers, billers, assistants, and just making sure that the people that are there are both tracked and monitored, but they're also and would you expect that to be even after uh, after the pandemic passes? Is this sort of more, a more a permanent permanent state of affairs with what's called non-essential people in the system working from home? Yeah, that's that's interesting. So uh, my actual office is located in Chapel Hill, um, very close to the medical center. So it's an additional complexity just because my office space could potentially be used for clinical care. So in addition to um, being concerned about people returning to the work for employee safety, there's also the concern of if we do need that space, we just need to make sure it's available. So right now, um, one example is there's a group within occupational health that is currently using my space. So it's not even a question of, you know, will I be able to return to work safety-wise? There's also a question of, can that space be better used for clinical care? Right. So you, you mentioned the, uh, the suspension of elective procedures and then the resumption. What have you, how have you balanced the increased demand for hospital beds and resources related to COVID-19 versus the demand for, for other services? And maybe you could talk us through a little bit, a little bit more detail on the, uh, around your policies toward elective procedures. And then what is your outlook for that going forward? It's such a, um, a big part of revenue for any, uh, any, any um, health system. And it's, mm -hmm. it's obviously important for people who have other, uh, other ailments and, and conditions that, that, that need treatment for them to to get that treatment, uh, probably many of them are, are afraid of getting afraid of getting COVID if they go to the hospital and so forth. How have you managed that? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and I think um, it's interesting because I don't think I've ever heard the word you know patient as the consumer as many times as I had in the past couple weeks. Because <clears throat> even though we've put the proper safety precautions in place, there's a lot of patients who are really fearful are coming to seek care, and that's 
within a hospital setting, within an ASC, urgent care, primary care, that's across the board. So one of the things that UNC is really focused on is seeing the patient as a consumer and making sure that we're doing, taking the extra step, <clears throat> whether that's you know sending text messages to patients saying, hey, we're up and operating, here's the process if you are concerned, um, reaching out and saying, hey, you know, you haven't received that primary care treatment appointment. Here's what your primary care doctor is doing to keep you safe because there is that huge patient concern. And one of the biggest things that we are looking out for is people canceling um, non-COVID related uh, uh, procedures that they need and that potentially becoming really complex and really costly down the line. So really communicating that to the patient and seeing them as a consumer is something that's really interesting just because a lot of times people see healthcare is not um, an area where patients have choice and we're really trying to emphasize the fact that you do have choices and here's the benefit of seeking care safely. Got it. In general, what, what would you say is the level roughly of elective procedures today versus what, what it was before all this began, say in January or, or last or this point last year? Yeah, so we're still definitely not ramped up to normal. There's some cases that were scheduled that we're ne we'll never get back. Um, as far as the end of 2020, the goal is to get back up to 50% of what we were this time in 2019. So we're, it's kind of the expectation that, um, you know, some of those patients we may not get back, but we're just trying to do, do the best that we can. And we're really trying to use platforms like telehealth and other options to just keep that patient interaction and make sure that the patient does feel safe, they do feel comfortable, but we're, we're trying to proactively reach out to patients as opposed to them having come to us because we know that we won't get that ramp up like we were expecting or like we had last year. Got it. Uh, you mentioned ASCs and urgent care and primary care and other non-hospital settings. That's been even before the pandemic. I know that was a, a big area of focus for, for UNC, especially given mm -hmm. the state's rural profile. What are the advantages and disadvantages of, of, of focused on, let's call it non-hospital settings, and how has that changed, uh, changed with the pandemic? Yeah, so um, I'll start on the policy side, and then I can think through some of the operational stuff. One of the benefits that, well, I shouldn't say there's a benefit to a pandemic, but one of the things that we've seen as far as policy changes is CMS, um, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and other administrative bodies have really, on the state side, have really looked at um, rolling back some of the requirements that you have for ASCs and other outpatient settings. One example is CMS um, had this Hospital Without Walls initiative where they're giving ASCs temporary flexibility to offer procedures that would otherwise have not been approved. The, the thing about some of these changes is they are temporary and there's a stipulation within the rulemaking saying that it's during the public health emergency. So once COVID-19 is um, no longer a public health emergency, there is the question of where do we go next and where do we go with these procedures? Um, so as far as advantages, I do think that there are a lot of outpatient set settings that are trying to take advantage of this now, really show administrators and show policymakers that they can take on these patients during this temporary hospital without walls and the hope of making it permanent. Um, so we'll, you know, I'll definitely see, we'll definitely, you know, it's to be determined in terms of what could happen, but I know a lot of strategies that ASCs and other outpatient settings are taking now is just saying, you know, hey, we can't take on these patients. Let's show you we can do it now during a public health emergency just to confirm that when this is not the case, we can also take on these patients. Got it. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. You were going to talk about some of the operational operational challenges. Oh, sure. Um, 
you know, one thing I'll also mention is that ASCs are at a little bit of an advantage now because they have a little bit more of um, payer mix flexibility. So they do have the ability, you know, since there are a lot of people are afraid to go into hospitals right now. And consumers, if you have the choice between a hospital or ASC, it's often seen that one of these outpatient settings is a little bit more safer. You're not dealing with, you know, a COVID unit. You're not dealing with people that are in ICU beds. So when you're thinking about what the patient wants, they would prefer the ASC setting. And the benefit there is you're getting more uh, patients who are on commercial insurance, people that do have insurance, period. And so the payer mix that you're receiving is a little bit higher than it used to be which is a huge benefit to ASCs right now is they're able to take advantage of giving the consumer what they want. And in, in turn, it's really giving people a higher payer mix in those settings. Got it. Uh, you mentioned CMS and I'm interested in how your uh, and UNC Health's relationship with regulators and other government officials at the state and federal levels have changed since the, since the output, uh, since the onset of the, of the crisis. Uh, we've, you and I have talked before about certificate of need laws uh, mm -hmm. which require health systems to seek permission from state regulators for a range of activities from adding beds to purchasing certain kinds of equipment. Uh, what has been your experience with, with regulators uh, before, before the crisis and then, and then since? Give us a little flavor for what it's been like dealing with folks in real time as you're reacting to uh, this public health emergency. Yeah, so, um, you know, we do spend a lot of time with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And, you know, I've seen a lot of just relaxing of the standards, but there's always this emphasis on this is temporary. So, for example, when you, um, you know, one of the things that you have to do, even if you are approved for a certificate of need, you have to report how things are going. And we've seen a lot of, you know, deadline delays relaxing of standards in terms of what has to be turned in, in, in terms of criteria. Some of the data um, is not required in the same way. So there is a relaxing of those standards. The concern in North Carolina is that um, when you do have these big Duke Healths and UNCs and Wake Meds of the world, they wanna keep their competitive advantage. And especially a place like UNC, we do focus on research and education. A lot of our doctors are also professors and also researchers. So there's this huge emphasis on, we don't wanna, um, you know, change the way the market is set up. And we want to make sure that we are focused on academics because there's an academic medical center. Um, so I, I think that while these standards are re being relaxed during the public health emergency, we will have big health systems like UNC and Duke saying, hey, you know, we, we focus on research and we don't want like an HCA or another group that's not focused as much on academics to enter our, our territory here. Hmm. Um, on a, that's not the case on a national level. I do think that's a little bit specific to North Carolina because we have such a cluster of schools in the state. Um, but I do think you'll see a lot of these academic research places um, being concerned and arguing that, you know, you, if you do want to focus on cutting edge research and patient care, you want to you want to keep academics first. And that's kind of yeah. a competitive edge. Got it. Um, in full disclosure, for those listening, Alex was a former policy analyst uh, with, with me. And in that uh, in that role, you uh, came across the idea of surprise medical billing uh, a lot, mm -hmm. uh, and that's been a, a big, big area of focus. Uh, it's been a little bit lost in the debate, but uh, surely will be part of part of the conversation again at some point. How's your perspective on on surprise medical bills and uh, the notion that you don't always you, you talked about patient choice, and there are cases where you may not have have high levels of patient choice. If you're, if you're coming in the emergency room and you need treatment right away, maybe you, you don't, people aren't so worried about what the cost is for, 
the anesthesiologist or other, uh, other, other services as part of that process. How do you think that this debate has changed, I guess, sort of your view toward, toward surprise medical billing as it's, as it's known and the outlook for that debate going forward? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's, it's an area that's gone away a little bit, but is not gone away forever in the sense that um, COVID-19 is definitely an area where there's a lot of sentiment in terms of um, concern about patient care. And there's a lot of people that are going in with COVID symptoms or COVID-like symptoms who are also receiving surprise medical bills. And I think right now the focus is patient care, but it's the pendulum is going to swing back to patient costs sooner rather than later. Um, especially as you're seeing, you know, more understanding of how to treat COVID patients, how to separate patients from other, um, other patients in the hospital that don't have COVID-like symptoms. I think it's just an area that right now the focus has shifted, but it's not going away because all these people that are receiving COVID care are going to be concerned about the cost of care. And if you have um, a particular provider who is out of network and charging you a $5,000 hospital bill for you know, 12 hours worth of care, that, that's not an issue that's going to go away. Right, right. So we all hope that this crisis will end sooner rather than later, but whenever that, that point is, and unfortunately it doesn't, doesn't seem like it's going to be in the very near term, but what will follow will inevitably be a, a conversation at the, at the national level as well as the state level about how to, how to modify and pr better prepare the U.S. health system to, to, for, for such, such pandemics and for such mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, increases in what's called surge capacity or, or uh, capacity for, for dealing with these things. How do you think this conversation is likely to evolve? And, and maybe you in the, in the strategy group and, and your colleagues at UNC will, will be appropriate participants in this conversation. So what do you think are the, the key principles of such a, I guess, a long-term effort to really kind of take a look at, at the U.S. healthcare system and, uh, and how we, to borrow a phrase from the U.K., build back better? Mm -hmm. um, so one of them we mentioned, which was really taking a critical eye of what type of care needs to be done in an inpatient hospital setting versus what can be done in a 24-hour ASC or an urgent care center. And I think there'll really be a focus on um, through marketing and advertising, like you don't necessarily need to go to the ER for this. And so I think you'll really see um, more information from the patient focusing on that option of patient choice and saying that, you know, when you are, obviously when there's emergency, there's emergency, but there are multiple options of care and people should take advantage of them. Another thing I would um, <clears throat> be interested in is just the focus on innovation. So one area that UNC is thinking about is options like remote patient monitoring. And, you know, in addition to telehealth, also offering things like kiosks where you have a blood pressure cuff or a temperature check, you know, a kiosk, for example, a telehealth kiosk within a school is a great idea of something that you don't have a lot of nurses um, that are, you know, the nurse per student population is you know, one nurse to maybe 500 students. And so something like a kiosk option where students can go in and get their temperature checked and actually speak to a UNC provider is a really great alternative to care. Um, so I think there's gonna be a focus on really meeting patients where they're at, where they work, where they live. So whether that's like a kiosk within, you know, office buildings is a great opportunity, but we're really trying to focus on, we have the experts here at UNC if we can't meet face-to-face, -face, how else can we get in touch with that patient and make sure that they're getting the care they receive? Um, so I'm, I'm really interested to see where, you know, these remote monitor, monitoring apps go, where, you know, kiosk options and just telehealth as a whole goes, because our focus is really to say that we do have cutting, uh, you know, 
cutting edge research and the top level physicians, how can we make sure that those people are used in the best way and um, regardless of where that person lives. Got it. You know, you mentioned a couple of times telehealth and, and I think in some ways telehealth, again, at the, at the higher, higher level in the popular press, it's been almost described as a panacea. Um, as in your experience and your, your organization's experience, what have been maybe the sticking points? Are there places where you found that patients just don't want to seek telehealth for certain, for certain procedures and thus you need to overcome that, uh, you know, the psychological gaps and so forth. So what are, what, maybe what are, what are some of the learnings you've had about, about telehealth, which would be applicable going forward again once the, once the pandemic uh, ends? Yeah, so I, I think one thing that we're focused on is not every type of care can be provided through telehealth. And so we're really trying to segment the areas of care that can. So one example is, you know, primary care. I think it wouldn't be far off to say that in the next few years, if a primary care physician is not um, knowledgeable about telehealth and competent in telehealth, it probably will have not have a lot of success because it's going to be a requirement for the future. Um, there's even within particular service lines. So for example, within neurology, telestroke is an area that's getting a lot of uh, interest just because stroke is an area where you need to react quickly. You need to understand what's going on quickly. And that's an area where there's been a lot of research in that particular space. And neurologists are really focused on, you know, making sure they understand telestroke. Behavioral health and psychi psychiatry is another area where telehealth is really viable. Um, I would say an area where maybe not so much is something like oncology care. Um, <clears throat> you know, so just focusing on areas where, where if telehealth can be used, making sure to use it in the right way. If it can't, just acknowledging that and making sure that you're focused on other areas of growth and innovation. Got it. Uh, maybe I'll save the last question, which is maybe sort of the hardest one, which is as you look forward, you talked uh, at the at the beginning of your comments about uh, projecting peaks and thinking about uh, when North Carolina sort of went into phase two around Memorial Day, as you look look out now, maybe not just in North Carolina, but you know, Florida is not that far away. I'm sure you have folks coming from, from Florida, North Carolina and, and, and the reverse. As you look ahead to the rest of the summer, as you look around the country in addition to your own state, where are you and UNC Health kind of anticipating uh, things going forward? Is it just, do we just continue to have these uh, cases kind of snowballing and continuing to rise, or is there is there uh, some sort of uh, light at the end of the tunnel as as these um, measures that that are being employed in many places, you know, requiring masks and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, fact, what what's your uh, uh, what's your crystal ball say? <laughs> um, you know, one thing I will say is Memorial Day and July Fourth were two area two holidays that we were looking out specifically. As far as from here on out, it really is focusing on politics. So we're really trying to see, you know, a lot of people are saying that, you know, mask wearing, particularly in, in this part of the country, in the South, Southeast, is really about, um, you know, a lot of people feel like whether or not to wear a mask is focused on politics. So we're really focused on what various governors are saying, how they're rolling out their phases, what they're looking at in terms of mask requirements and how people are adhering. So whereas at first we were looking at specific holidays, now it's really a focus on what governors are saying and how they're reacting um, when these surges are happening. So, you know, daily news updates from various governors is something that as a, you know, hospital planning operations team normally would not do. That's definitely something that we're focused on now, just to make sure that, you know, when this next phase happens, are we prepared for the aftermath if the phase includes, you know, an opening of North Carolina? 
Got it. Well, Alex, a fascinating uh, discussion. Thanks so much for your for your thoughts and for your for your work for work for the state and really for for all of us in the end. Um, uh, thank you all for joining today, and uh, we'll end it there. Thanks so much. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.